0: Hello. Before we start this week's Radio Davos, I just wanted a few seconds of your time to tell you about another great podcast that you really should check out. It's called Meet the Leader, and it's where leaders from business and elsewhere tell you what it's like to be in charge of a big organisation, the challenges they've had to overcome, and the habits they would not be without. Recent guests include the CEO of Slack, the Chief Investment Officer of BlackRock, and the Chief Exploration Officer of Tencent. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Meet the Leader.
1: The last time we did this was in May 2022, and the headline was, we are in the midst of a perfect storm. Now we're looking at a situation that became worse, and the outlook has darkened.
0: Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we're looking at the latest Chief Economist's Outlook, a quarterly report from the World Economic Forum that pulls together the opinions of scores of experts from around the world. Well, let's start with the bad news.
2: Are we heading in for a recession? The likelihood is yes. This is going to have
3: impact on poverty and impact on inequality as well. It's going to hurt those who are most fragile.
1: Unsurprisingly, social unrest is expected to continue to rise.
0: High inflation, low growth. These economists tell us what they expect from policymakers.
2: Central banks dislike inflation. They are going to try and suppress it as much as they can, but they will ultimately have to accept it'll be higher than what they have been traditionally
0: wanting. Some economists believe the recession is of a type that will make it short lived and that inflation could peak in months.
2: Peak inflation,
0: I suspect peaking inflation we will get the points of that, I think, between now and year end.
2: Supply-side type of recession that is manageable. Once many of these situations get resolved, supply will bounce back, as will growth.
0: Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcast, leave us a rating and a review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and with this look at what next for the global economy...
1: We are talking about millions of people being impacted. For some, that's going to be be... manageable but for many it is
0: not this is Radio Davos what's going on in the global economy it's a question that the World Economic Forum's community of chief economists seeks to answer every three months with its chief economist outlook the latest episode is just out you can read the whole report online and it's not for the most part a very easy read Because for large parts of the world, inflation is high and rising, cutting deep into people's real incomes and posing dilemmas for policymakers in governments and central banks who want to stop prices spiralling, but also want to avoid a deep, lengthy economic recession. So what will happen? In this episode, we get the views of three experts. Rima Bhatia, economic advisor at Gulf International Bank in Bahrain, Guy Miller, who's at Zurich Insurance as chief market strategist, and Santi Santiratai, chief economist at the Singapore-based internet company C. They were all speaking at the launch of the latest chief economist outlook, which was hosted by the World Economic Forum's Adrian Monk. Adrian began by asking the person who put the report together, the forum's Sadia Zahidi, to read off some of the headlines from the outlook. Here's Sadia.
1: The chief economist outlook is the views of 50 of the top chief economists from various sectors, various geographies, telling us where the global economy is headed. We do this exercise every few months. The last time we did this was in May, 2022, and the headline was that we are in the midst of a perfect storm. Now, here in September, we're looking at a situation that became worse and the outlook has darkened. So for example, this time, 70% of our respondents believe that um, the global economy is headed for a recession within the course of 2022 or sometime in 2023. Now, at the same time, the picture does look different around uh, different parts of the world. And we have to be conscious that what is happening right now in Europe is not quite the picture around the world. Europe is certainly the area in greatest trouble, if you will, when we look at the results of the outlook. So for example, nine out of 10 respondents um, expect growth to be weak or very weak um, when it comes to Europe. Um, Respondents are marginally less pessimistic when it comes to China um, with 67% expecting weak or very weak growth in 2022 with things looking a little better in 23. The United States is the opposite, things look pretty good at the moment, um, but there is a sense that growth may be weaker when it comes to 2023. The Middle East and North Africa region um, looks set to perform particularly well, seven out of 10 respondents expecting um, growth, and again, not surprising given where energy prices currently are. In South Asia, generally positive outlook, but the set of people that are expecting a negative outlook has grown from the last time we did this. It was 7% in May. It's 20% this time around. In Central Asia, the set of people that are expecting growth to become weaker has risen again from 20% to 40%. Um, And finally, when it comes to Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, the picture is mixed. In Sub-Saharan Africa, now a solid majority, 60%, are expecting a slowdown in growth in 2023. Whereas in Latin America, things are looking a little more upbeat, with a solid 56% expecting moderate growth. In addition, there are a number of other trends that get highlighted in this uh, month's Chief Economist Outlook. Inflation is expected to remain very high, although the outlook is better than it was in May. Um, Real wages, unsurprisingly, will continue to fall um, and are expected to not keep pace with this um, rise in prices. Around nine in 10 expect real wages to decline in low income economies and eight in 10 in developing economies. Food and energy um, crises are continued to remain very um, uh, large risks, and unsurprisingly, social unrest is expected to continue to rise as the cost of living continues to bite some of the lowest income across developing and developing developed economy populations.
4: Arema, can I turn to you and say, for, you're based in the Middle East. How does uh, it look from your perspective, are we heading into a truly global recession?
2: I think um, to answer that question around recession, um, you know, it's it's really important to put things into perspective. First and foremost, we started twenty twenty two on a, on a relatively positive note. We were tr- we were still uh, trying to deal with a lot of the variants of, of COVID. Um, there was the inflation concern, central bank concern, but it was something that. Obviously appeared quite manageable. I mean, what a difference a quarter makes! By the end of March, um, we were in a completely different situation. Um, you know, with the with the with the Russian-Ukraine conflict, as well as the China lockdowns. I mean, that certainly just changed that that entire global narrative into into negative. But it's really important to highlight here, uh, rather than you know regurgitating all that's been going on. I think it's really important to highlight that we are sort of traversing through this this new world of policy paradoxes, you know, stormy conditions and and you know a lot of opportunities at the same time I mean there's all uh, occurring at the same time. So are we heading in for a recession? The likelihood is yes that you know given how the slowdown is is transpiring, I think we are heading in for for a slowdown. Now, how severe that slowdown is and how much of it you want to label as a recession, I think it, it, it depends. But this is supply, this is supply shock. And that's something we have to keep in mind. Um, the, the, the global environment is where it is today because of the war and the impact on supply because of COVID lockdowns and the impact on supply and because of the pandemic and supply was still trying to recover from there. So all the story is around that. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind that if one were to see China coming out of this lockdown, which it looks like they're already starting to ease some of that pressure. Um, And we are seeing the impact of central bank action on demand, which is going to tackle some part of that inflation, then we are seeing inflationary pressures coming down. So I think then we're looking at a more reasonable environment um, of, of, of prices. And that in itself will mean that, you know, from a, from a global growth perspective, things are going to slow down, things are going to look worse than they are today, but. With the inflation uh, situation improving, I think growth will start to pick up thereafter. The supply side is, is really important to highlight because that is the, the uh, type of recession that is that is manageable. Once um, many of these situations get resolved, supply will bounce back, as will growth. And I think it's really important to focus on that on that part.
4: Thanks, Rima. Guy, if I can turn to you. Um, Rima spoke about some of the things that are impacting on the supply side. The Chinese government will transition in March 2023 with some optimistic uh, signs that there might be a loosening in some of the the lockdown restrictions by then. What's your inflation horizon? Have we hit the peak or are we just surfing the crest of the wave?
5: Yeah, maybe just to pick up a little bit from what Rima said, I mean, the supply side has clearly been been an issue and, you know, we are more optimistic in that as well, seeing some of the bottlenecks really ease up. We're seeing whether it's supplier delivery times, inventories, backlogs, all of that is getting better. I think one of the big issues right now for the central banks in particular, of course, is, is actually on the demand side. And again, this relates back to the, the pandemic, the excesses that we had seen from that, that res- resulted in, in consumers in particular having more money in their pockets, more money and uh, cash reserves, and an insatiable demand almost for the things that they couldn't buy during the last two or three years. So we have seen that transition from the goods side, which was clearly out of balance towards the service sector, Um, But that still leaves the central banks with a problem because, as you said, inflation is still way above their targets and you've got pretty much full employment in most economies. And how do you deal with that? And really, the only way they can deal with that is by trying to, frankly, reduce the demand Mm -hmm. by slowing down the economy through hiking interest rates. And from that perspective, My concern, actually, is that we're almost in a race to the top. Really, since June, we've seen a dramatic pickup in the number and the scale of these rate hikes that we're seeing. And we all know that takes quite a long time to feed into the real economies. And they're not being able to to take breath right now because there is is so much pressure, given the the high levels of inflation, to keep going, to keep moving these rates, rates higher. But to that point... Um, again, as we look further out, we're a little bit more optimistic in terms of the inflation side as well. Clearly, these much higher rates will have an impact in slowing demand. You just need to look at the US housing market, where we're seeing 30-year mortgage rates jump from 3% in December to 6.5%. Now, this is having a, a tangible impact on the demand for homes. It has a tangible impact in terms of consumers being able to, to fund their, their, their borrowing and their, their debt costs. So that will slow I think on the, on the demand side as well. And if you put that together with a lot of the things that people don't talk about anymore, remember we were all concerned about chip prices, lumber prices, steel, copper prices. All of these things a year ago were in everybody's newspapers. Right now, these things that I just mentioned, they're not down 2 or 3%, but they're down 10, 15, 20, in some cases, 50 and 60% from the highs that we had seen last year. So a combination, I think, of these uh, supply side measures that that Rima spoke about, the commodity price, the base effects beginning to kick in, and frankly, a precipitous slowdown in global growth, particularly in areas such as Europe and the US, I think ultimately will pull these inflation numbers down quite dramatically as we get into the back end of this year. So peak inflation, I suspect peaking inflation and again, we'll get the proof uh, points of that, I think, between now and your end.
4: Sensey, just turning to you from Singapore, what is your perspective on some of the things that businesses and policymakers should be doing to tackle this very immediate cost of living crisis that's impacting employees, it's impacting firms, and it's impacting governments?
3: I think that's one of them very you know, important issues that facing policymakers and business alike. Uh, I think one of the key things to remember is that uh, this inflation is a real a squeeze on purchasing power. I think it's also coming out in the survey um, that um, most people believe that wage are not really keeping up with this uh, spike in inflation. And especially when you consider, um, as Rima and Guy have said, that a lot of this inflation is coming from a supply side disruption as well. And it's very concentrated around energy, around uh, food to some extent as well. Uh, all of this um, Going to be very large proportion of the basket of purchase of uh, the lower income groups. So this is going to have impact on poverty and impact on inequality as well. It's going to hurt those who are most fragile at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak. So I think that's kind of like the difficult policy question and kind of the key of focus that they um, policymakers have to focus on. And I think the couple of things um, to to kind of address this issue at least probably have like three things come to mind. I think first and um, foremost is that we have to recognize that actually kind of playing on the theme that that Rima has said, that it's not all bad. In fact, um, as we are seeing economic slowdown, especially in merchandise and goods market, we're actually seeing a bit of a switch back to the service economy. Um, You look around the world um, in the past two years, of course, tourism has been totally absent and we've been relying on um, export and merchandise to drive growth globally. And a lot of economies. Now we are seeing that tourism are coming back um, and, and, and that's continued to, to, to see re- good recovery. And of course, if China were to also lift its restrictions, that can really kind of provide another leg of boost. And that's really important for a lot of economies, especially in the region that I'm looking at. Um, so that kind of chip back to a tourism and service economy is going to be really important. These are uh, these are the sectors, uh, related sectors, which provide a lot of employment opportunities as well. So I think that for the government, you have to make sure that this improvement in mobility in tourism continues. We don't want a, another disruption to that to happen on top of the these kind of slowdown in the goods and merchandise markets. Secondly is to turn to perhaps the policy mix. Of course, market policy is going to be focusing on inflation right now. But uh, fiscal policy is a potential avenue to help shield some of these shocks, especially to the low income groups. A lot of the countries are not going to have as much fiscal ammunition and policy space as they did before the pandemic because they have used up a lot of that uh, fighting the pandemic. But they still have, many countries will still have some space in order to do a more targeted approach to, so to speak, to deliver the proverbial medicine to those who need it most. And I think that's where kind of the data um, become very important because you want to kind of de- pre- deliver this precise fiscal stimulus only to target group to he- at least help cushion them against different kind of shocks. And last but not least, I think um, we don't talk about this anymore for some reason, but actually one of the uh, potential silver lining that we have seen in the past few years was the, the increase in digital adoption, which is, you know, happened a lot, especially in emerging markets. Um, in Southeast Asia, for example, you've seen about hundred million new digital uh, users or even greater than that um, in the past few years. And these are the traditionally the people who don't really use digital uh, tools in the past before. So now they come online, they use digital payments, they use e-commerce, these many things. There's a lot more data around them. There are are a lot more opportunities for them to connect to the markets. And the question for next part is really how can we leverage this technology and access to technology and digital adoption to better um, help these underserved uh, groups so that um, they can weather this storm better. So I think those kind of three key um, pillars, you know, ensure mobility, um, targeted fiscal response, and ensure technology can really help serve more inclusive growth.
4: Thanks, Santi. Um, Got some questions here from some journalists. Um, Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson from the Financial Times has a couple of questions to put to the panel. Um, Firstly, where do you see the most pronounced risks for stagflation? And secondly, uh, is it the panel's view that we're entering a new economic regime in which inflation remains more elevated than in the past and where we're subject to more volatile supply chain issues on a sustained basis? So a couple of very big questions there from Andrew at the FT. Guy, do you want to jump in first on stagflation?
5: Well, I guess in terms of the the region most vulnerable, I I would say it it is the Eurozone. It is a region that has typically lower trend growth. Um, and As a result of that, it's always inevitable that that growth dynamic is going to be at risk. And what we're seeing here is a combination of that slower trend growth combined, of course, with this exogenous shock in terms of the energy component. So I, I think it's fairly clear that certainly for probably the coming year that this region is going to uh, fit that definition of, of, of stag, uh, stagflation. I think as we get further out, right, I think some of the, the, the policies around the, the next gen recovery fund, the potential to move to uh, sustainable uh, energy sources, that has the potential to improve things. And again, going back to what Rima said earlier, it's not just bad news. We have to take these, these changes, these sort of seismic shifts to be opportunities to reposition some of these economies. I think that's absolutely first uh, first and foremost. To the point about inflation rates running higher going forward, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, let's be clear about one thing. The central banks are still being very uh, clear about what their mandate. They are absolutely fixated on in bringing inflation back towards uh, their targets, and that is taking priority over the growth dynamic. So that's something, in a way, that's important. It is acting as a backstop, and it's also why having these independent central banks is so important. But when you look over the last fifteen or twenty years, we saw persistent goods price deflation, and that was one of the reasons why we saw the, the aggregate inflation numbers being held down. Mm-hmm. Service sector inflation was always running a bit hotter. The question really is: Is that going to be the the, the the dynamic going forward. And I suspect not to the same extent. I think the good sector is going to be running a little bit higher than we've seen in the past for various structural reasons around geopolitics and trade. But I think it is going to be a of more marginal. It's still going to be around these targets, even if they, they, they are slightly more on the higher side rather than the, the lower side. So um, yes, but to, to a lesser extent, I think, to answer the question.
4: And Rima, do you share that view from uh, Guy there on on the, some of those risks?
2: Yes, I think. Well, if, if we if we talk about the inflation first, I think ultimately the, the central banks are going to have to tolerate a higher level of inflation, and how far can they raise rates? Uh, before bringing the bringing inflation down to to that uh, you know two percent, I mean I think that's no longer realistic in today's world. There's so much disruption that has occurred, and getting back to a more normal functioning supply chain, global supply chain, at a time when there's all this talk of deglobalization, there's all the talk about nearshoring of of, of supply chains. I think these are these are potent um, pressures. Which are going to keep prices elevated uh, for some time to come. And I think ultimately it's just a question of the central banks coming around to accepting a higher rate and then allowing policy to normalize and allowing global growth to continue. If they continue on this path to bring it down to 2%, I think that that is going to be unachievable, achievable at the cost, at at a very, very painful cost of of shattering uh, the the global momentum. So um, I think. Part of it is to sort that out. We, we also have so many other other issues, uh, the labor market, um, what's been happening in the labor market post the pandemic. I mean, those are major shifts that are underway. Um, there is a shift in terms of how we work, how we deliver. All of those are, are coming into this, this understanding of, around inflation. So I think central banks dislike inflation. They are going to try and suppress it as much as they can, but they will ultimately have to accept that it'll be higher than what they have been traditionally um, wanting to achieve.
4: Santi, we heard there from Rima about the, the pressures we're seeing on the global labor market. You mentioned the digital growth that we've seen in, in some areas. Are there opportunities there to bring those people anew into the global labor market using the kind of digital delivery of services and other, um, and other things?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to kind of point to um, the one of the questions that was asked as well in terms of period, are we entering periods of higher volatility? I think that's um, definitely one of the key features we should be assuming, you know, looking forward and how business should uh, adapt to that. And again, I, I think you bring back to the question of, of, tech, of potential technology, what it can do. Um, I think one one key example that we've been working uh, a lot with uh, looking at research is understanding how the small and medium scale enterprises, which of course were really heavily impacted during the COVID times, um, were able to use um, digital technologies such as e-commerce so that they can uh, reach new customers uh, in different markets. Um, Even the small firms can become exporters across borders. And that allows them to diversify their markets. Even if the markets are hit by certain shocks, or demand slowdown, supply shocks, they have more avenue to sell to the multiple markets. And I think that's kind of a good example where you can achieve somewhat better uh, diversification because costs of such a diversification become lower um, and more accessible for the, uh, the smaller uh, companies. So I think that's one of the uh, good examples. The other example would be kind of within the area of digital financial service or FinTech. Um, a lot of financial services become very important shock absorbers, whether it's for the small, and medium scale enterprises, as mentioned, or other kind of um, um, low income groups as well. And, 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 and that's where um, the technology can potentially help because some of these uh, um, groups uh, normally would not have access to the commercial banks' credits uh, because they lack collateral, because they lack um, uh, credit history. But um, with technologies um, have brought about you know, ability to, for these, uh, to use alternative data, for them to access these kind of credit, these kind of loans at the time when they, are, they need it most, at a time when it's a macro slowdown, it's not really to their own fault, but because of the global macro is turning against them. So I think these are some of the examples where you can really help the underserved population using technologies, but it's not gonna happen automatically though. All of these things is that you need require efforts to improve digital literacy. You need to uh, uh, improve access to internet. You need to lower the cost of devices. Some of these uh, things requires policy and, and the private sector to come together.
4: One more question from The Straits Times, Shafali Reki, who says, in the picture of doom and gloom, is there a silver lining that we should look forward to? And also, what would your advice be to businesses in terms of their priorities in the coming quarters? RIMA. Can I ask you, is there, uh, from where you're sitting, a silver lining to the current situation? And uh, what would your advice be to businesses as they look to prepare themselves for the coming year ahead?
2: That's a great question, uh, because yes, uh, certainly there's a silver lining, and I think that is what we need to focus on in these in these rather dramatic times. We've got some very strong disruptors and accelerators that have. Come out of the pandemic. Some of some of these trends were there before the pandemic, but you know, global growth was was not was was actually quite weak prior to the pandemic. There was a lot of concern about where we we're heading. The pandemic's provided this this opportunity to really uh, move forward on on so many fronts: sustainability, ESG. Whether we're talking of changing of supply chains, looking at health, healthcare, health tech. Reforms in that sector, um, you know, looking at digital transformation, which is such a key part. It's going to, it's, it is impacting every industry around the world, and um, you know, there, there's this whole view towards ensuring that all business models are data and service driven. These are these are big shifts. These are big changes. These are mega trends which uh, provide opportunity for businesses which are willing. To see through all of this noise uh, that we are, we are in at the moment, see through all of the storms that we are traveling through, and to have uh, clear goals towards how to uh, to take advantage of these opportunities. Because these are truly um, there for, for businesses to grow on. Businesses have to change. This has been the story since the pandemic started. Businesses no longer can continue on the path that they were at. That's the opportunity. And that's the silver lining. And that's something that I think provides um, a lot of momentum, a lot of growth, where we entered the pandemic uh, on a relatively strong note. We've come out of the pandemic, households and businesses on a relatively strong note, Um, whether it's in terms of savings, whether it's in terms of businesses not having spent uh, for so many years, for, 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 for so many years, the last couple of years. I think all of that provides the chance that investment can be put to good use. We There are concerns around you know, economic policies being um, being introduced by, by some economies around the world. But I think at the broader level, I mean, even if you look into um, ESG and sustainability, I mean, that's come at the forefront of every industry. Businesses as well as boards are now getting involved uh, to try and shape our future. The millennials, the younger population are forcing us to take a look at our business models, to pay attention to the mark that we are going to leave on this planet. So I think that in itself is a huge opportunity that we need to start uh, taking advantage of. And that is happening as we speak.
4: Sansi, reasons for optimism from where you're sitting in Singapore?
3: You know, in every um, crisis, there's always opportunities like this. And I think, as Rima has said, um, I think that the key is to Kind of uh, look at you know some of the key issues that emerge and and kind of coalesce and and galvanize all of us to focus on right with the sustainability healthcare and digital transformation i think i'll if i if i may i can add a little bit more to the second part of the question a little bit as well because i think it's related to this because from a business perspective if you think about um, um, this crisis you, it is also an opportunity because you know that if you can emerge from this uh better than, than others then you're gonna be even stronger um, than before. And we have seen you know, the previous downturn, previous crisis, uh, have seen this happening as well. And so what, what, what is it that needs to be done to weather the storm better? In my view, I have humble opinion, it's probably a mix of two things at least. One is to um, achieve a better kind of risk diversification. I think in a more volatile, and a more uncertain world, that's the key thing. And this can include you know, diversification in terms of geography, whether you, where the markets you're selling to, um, your supply chain. Um, it also could mean um, diversification in terms of business sector. But all of this is not uh, free. Uh, of course, there are costs of diversification. Um, it may come at a cost of uh, e- efficiency. And, and so you need to kind of adapt that through time. There'll be times when it's better to focus on your core business, your core markets, and just go there and be very uh, focused. And there'll be times where you really need to kind of diversify and kind of managing risk better. And that mix between the two side is gonna keep changing and it's different for everyone. I think for businesses, it's about finding that sweet spot and adjust this through time. So adaptability uh, becomes really important. So, you need to be diversifying your risk, managing your risk well. You need to be adaptable, but highly adaptable and agile over time. And if you can do that, both both, you're going to get opportunities where you can emerge better than other people.
4: Guy, the last word on optimism to you.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things to be optimistic about. At the very big uh, global level, there's a transition, as I said, to sustainable energy that creates many opportunities both for companies and importantly for governments, but we must take that. I think we're also reaching a, a technology inflection point as well. I think that while we are moving toward, it would appear a more bipolar world around technology that can create an opportunity for competitive striving to be to be better and can create many opportunities around that. So I'm quite optimistic about that as well. I think um, one other thing is that I think there's going to be less central bank providing unlimited liquidity that we've seen really over the last 10 or 15 years. And that is quite a good thing. It was maybe Darwinian and it will be leading to the, the survival of the fittest. Companies that are in the best position will do the best. Which leads me to the last point, which is around how do companies weather this? And it's going to be about sustainability, it's going to be about resilience. It's going to be making sure that they are they are flexible, that they have improve their supply chains not necessarily bringing things back on shore but diversifying supply chains particularly for key components making their business model more secure more resilient to get through the downturn which unfortunately uh, we're going to be coming into But to benefit once that upturn comes again and things are looking more normal, I think there's great potential there for companies and importantly for governments as well to reposition.
4: Sadia, just turning to you to bring our discussion of this global economic outlook to a close. It's probably one of the bloomier and darker reports that you've uh, and your team have produced in the the last few years. But um, are there signs of optimism that you draw from it and other conclusions that we perhaps should pay attention
1: when we look at the survey as a whole and everything that's come out there's probably two things that we really need to to focus on one vulnerability has increased for large parts of the global population both in developed economies and in developing economies and i think that's where some of these numbers and some of this gloomier outlook has to get translated into the real human impact that is expected and uh, that's where You know, the 90% are expecting that real wages are going to fall in developing economies, 80% in developed economies. So we are talking about millions of people being impacted as that cost of living begins to bite. And for some, that's going to be manageable, but for many, it is not going to be manageable. The second um, element that I think we have to look for is that the trend towards deglobalization that we were seeing also a few months earlier, and that was really sort of peak of the conversation um, once the the war in Ukraine began. I think there are still signs that this is going to continue and is going to be one of those profound mega trends for some time to come. So when we ask companies what they're expecting to do and how they're going to adapt to some of these changes, Most are expecting to diversify their supply chains, localize their supply chains, and many are expecting to adapt to the new geopolitical fault lines. So geopolitics and geoeconomics is here to stay for some time. At the same time, while there are some silver linings, and to the point that everybody has made uh, here, there aren't unfortunately silver bullets. It is going to take concerted proactive effort from a number of different stakeholders. So one towards the green transition. And we have a very mixed picture from the chief economists. Um, About half are not quite certain that the push towards the green transition will continue in the same way that we were seeing some months ago. And I think that is definitely something to watch out for in the midst of this energy crisis. The second element is that shift towards reskilling to better prepare the labor market for the future of work again there was a very concerted effort around this and this was at a peak in the, the midst of the pandemic this has to be pushed through very proactively by governments if they want their labor markets to be prepared to the point on safety nets the cost of safety nets can go down again using some of these new technologies so when it's edtech health tech, micro-insurance, a lot can be done, but again, it is going to take effort from governments and from the private sector as well to go into some of these new and emerging areas. So I agree that there are silver linings, but I think it's going to take coordination and multi-stakeholder cooperation.
0: Sadia Zahidi ending that discussion of the Chief Economist Outlook, which was moderated by Adrian Monk. You can find the whole report at our website, weform.org. We've done several episodes on the global economy, including last week's Radio Davos on inflation. Please do go back and find that one and check out our other podcasts, Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues, and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. If you like these podcasts, please do me a small but valuable favor and leave us a rating and maybe a review. And if you want to talk to us and other listeners of our podcasts about our podcasts and other podcasts, please join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.